invite you to take your Bible this morning, open it to Romans chapter 4. Like we have already mentioned this morning, today is a unique and special day for the church, a day where we um, remember, where we focus, where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, where really we focused on the whole of the gospel, the crucifixion, death and burial, and even the perfect life and His resurrection. The, the whole of the gospel is really what we celebrate today, and that is founded in the resurrection. In fact, I just want to start out by telling you this morning that the resurrection of Christ is really the bedrock of Christianity, isn't it? It's the foundation of all of our faith. It's central to our entire faith, our entire belief. In fact, Brian mentioned it earlier, in 1 Corinthians 15 you find Paul laying out a very detailed chapter there of what it means that Christ is resurrected, what the resurrection means for us, for Jesus, for our life to come and the future in Him. And he mentions a few verses, in fact three uh, different verses in there, in that chapter, that lay out the importance of the resurrection. One of them being 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is so central to Christianity that if Christ was not resurrected, we have no faith. We have no salvation. No belief. Resurrection, as you survey Scripture, you'll find it's the theme of the New Testament. The theme of the preaching of the apostles. For them, the gospel really meant nothing. The cross meant nothing without the resurrection. The whole of Scripture itself dedicated to pointing towards Christ, the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the cross of Christ, and His resurrection, ultimately. So it is the bedrock, the very foundation that you and I stand upon as believers. And yet, although it's such a foundational event, although it's so central to our faith, many people, including churchgoers, are not sure, they're not confident about the resurrection, about what it means, what it secured for us, what it does. Questions all over the church, questions all over the world, such as how does the resurrection even apply to our lives? What are the implications of the resurrection? What does it mean for our everyday lives? How does it impact our day-to-day living? You'll hear questions around such as this one. If Christ's death dealt with our sins, then why is the resurrection so central to our salvation? If Christ's death on the cross was to atone for our sin. Why is the resurrection important for our faith? Why is it necessary for our faith? And it really all boils down to one question that people ask concerning the resurrection. Does it really even matter that much? That's the general question people have. Does it even matter that much? And let me admit to you, many people, many, many people say that it doesn't. The world is full of people denying the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that correct? 
The world doesn't want to uphold in that. The world doesn't want to believe in that. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. It's ludicrous, impossible. In fact, if you look in Matthew chapter 28, even as Matthew ends his gospel, he reports uh, of the guards of the chief priests and the Pharisees making up a story about the resurrection. In Matthew 28, verse 11, while they were going, behold, Jesus has already resurrected here. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, told them that Christ had rose from the grave. Verse 12, when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night, stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we're going to satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They're paid off to lie about the resurrection. It didn't happen. Since the resurrection took place, people have been denying it. Not willing to believe in it. In fact, even today, the Church of Scotland, in the last several months, has come out and said, the resurrection did not happen. They have gone down and denied portions of Scripture which led them to the road to now deny the resurrection. Something so central to our faith, something so foundational is surrounded by so much debate. Does it even really matter? And let me say this morning, unequivocally, the resurrection matters. 100% central to our faith. In fact, let me say, that without the resurrection, none of us would be Christians. None of us would know Christ. It is the rock of our redemption. It is the security of our hope. It is the assurance of the promise of salvation. For if our God is not alive, church, then we have no hope in the life to come. If our God is not alive, we have no faith in any of His promises. If our God is not alive, we have no rock of assurance to lean upon. Simply because a dead God is no God at all. A dead God can do absolutely nothing. Another verse out of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, For if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But praise God that we don't have hope in this life only because of Christ. We have hope in the life to come because of Christ. That's what the resurrection guarantees for us. It guarantees the life to come for all believers. You and I can face death today with hope because of the resurrection. And so, since our God is alive, then salvation, then all who unite to Him in salvation will also be made alive, right? Our eternal life as Christians comes when we unite to Him who lives for eternity. Jesus said in John 14, 19, Yet a little while and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me, and because I live, you will live. If Christ does not live, we do not live, but because Christ does live, you and I can live with Him through salvation in Him. Resurrection is important. It's what distinguishes Christianity 
from everything else in the world, doesn't it? Distinguishes our God from the gods of all other religions of the world. All other groups and organizations. All other belief systems. Because our God is the only God who is what? Alive. All other gods in the world are dead. False. Man-made. Our God is the only true God true God of Scripture. And much more, He is the only God who came and who willfully died for His people and then rose again. No other religion has a God that would dare do such a thing. No other religion would dare think such a thing about their God. All other world religions say what? You need to get to God. Christianity says God has come to you. Provided a way secured it and guaranteed it through His resurrection. So it is the backbone to our whole faith, central to what we believe, resulting for us joy, life, hope, salvation itself. So if in the crucifixion, church, if in the crucifixion we watch in astonishment that God would die for us, and if in His burial we wait with eager anticipation, then in the resurrection... We stand in awe of eternal victory and immeasurable joy secured for us. Let's look here in Romans chapter 4 as we begin to look at the importance of the resurrection and answer that question, does it really matter? How does it matter for our faith? How does it matter for our day-to-day life? Why is it necessary for our salvation? We find that answer in Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at this morning one verse of Scripture, the last verse in Romans 4, that concisely and clearly lays out the importance of the resurrection for you and I. Paul here has been talking about um, faith and talking about righteousness through faith alone. And he's been highlighting Abraham and Abraham's life. You look there in verse 22, talking of Abraham, he says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pick up and read in verse 23. And read down to verse 25. Paul writes and says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's what we want to look at this morning. That's what we want to dissect and I want to break that verse down verse 25 into its natural two parts Jesus being delivered up for our trespasses and being raised for our justification so let's take the first part now and begin to work through it when Paul writes there and says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses he's making a direct reference to the cross, to the crucifixion, but we want to examine what it means for Him to be delivered up and then add to that what it means that He's delivered up for our trespasses. But first, I want to lay out before you the person of Christ. We need to understand who is being delivered up, who this Jesus really is. The first thing I want you to know about Jesus is that He is God. He is fully God. Completely divine. Despite... All the false views in church history, all the false views of Him that persist today, we can start 
way back in the beginning when the New Testament was still being circulated. We can talk about Gnosticism that denied the person of Christ. We can talk about Arianism that denied the deity of Christ on and on and on down the list. Even today, modern views of denying Jesus. Some people actually believe that he is not and has not always been God, that he became God at his baptism and that his deity left him at the crucifixion. That's not an accurate teaching of Christ. He has always been, always existed as God. A few verses to support that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1.19 In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9 In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John 10, 30, Jesus Himself says, I and the Father are one. John even says in John chapter 20, the whole purpose He wrote His Gospel was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This man who's delivered up for you and I is actually fully God Himself in the flesh. And that is why people have a hard time believing in Christ. That's why people make up all these things about Jesus that He's not actually God because they can't wrap their minds around the thought that God would die for humanity. But that's the truth of the Gospel, isn't it? God Himself nailed to a cross shedding His own blood for us. So important to understand about the person of Christ that He is God Himself. And this means that Jesus possesses all that God possesses. All the attributes that we would give to God, we give to Christ. Everything we know about the nature of God, we apply to Christ. Everything we know about the heart of God, the mind of God, we apply to Christ. He's eternal. He's independent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's holy. He possesses all authority, all control. Creation is subject to Him. He's the Creator of all things. All these things we apply to this man, Jesus, who was delivered up for us. So in understanding this person, understand first that He's God. Also understand He's sinless. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Verse 23, Peter will say, They mocked Him, they ridiculed Him, they reviled Him, and Jesus didn't open up His mouth. He didn't respond in kind. He just took it. There's no sin in Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He knew no sin. This God who took on flesh for you and I was sinless. He was an innocent man. He had never done anything wrong, never thought anything sinful, never had one sinful desire enter into his heart. Totally, completely sinless, guiltless, innocent. Third thing I want you to note 
is that he's also fully man. Fully God, completely sinless, also fully man. Born of a virgin, experienced all that human beings experience except sin. He's without sin. And he did that so that he could be the adequate, right substitute, the full sacrifice for humanity, so that he could be delivered up. Begin to grasp in your heart and in your mind the atrocity of the cross. That God, who is the creator of everything, would enter into creation and though had committed no sin, was condemned as the worst of criminals for you. Jesus was delivered up It was this Jesus delivered up for us. And delivered up means that He was given up. He was surrendered to. I want to highlight a few things that we know from Scripture concerning Christ being delivered up. First, I want you to notice He was delivered up into the hands of sinners. Acts 2.23 This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless, sinful men. Are you amazed by that thought? The God of the universe, completely perfect, without error, without corruption, without sin, would be delivered over to those who deserve to die in His place? Mark 10, 33 and 34, Jesus speaking to His disciples, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. Matthew 26, verse 45, Jesus praying in the garden right before His arrest, looks at His disciples who are sleeping and says to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. What humility is that? What dedication to go to the cross? What love for the guilty and love for the sinner is that? Why would God dare do such a thing as that? He who possesses all authority. He who has all power. He who is the God of all creation. The rightful King over all creation. Sinless, perfect, uncorrupted, guiltless. Would allow weak and worthless sinners to hold down His hands and nail Him to a hunk of wood. He who sustains all things of the universe, Hebrews 1, by the word of His power, the farthest star, the greatest planet, all of the minute microfibers of creation, giving every breath to every newborn baby on the earth simultaneously. He who sustains all things in creation, upholds galaxies, holds planets together, would allow these weak and worthless and corrupted sinful men to hold Him down and nail Him to a cross. Why would God dare do such a thing as that? He's delivered into the hands of sinners and allows them to arrest Him, to beat Him, and to crucify Him. 
so that he hangs in the public view, nailed to a cross, the whippings still present on his flesh, blood flowing down, unimaginable, while people mock him. If you're the Son of Man, take yourself down from there. If you're the King of the Jews, call your army out to save you. Look, he can't even save himself. Not only, church, was he delivered up to the hands of sinners. This God, sinless man, was delivered up to sin itself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us. The innocent and sinless person, Christ, was then at that moment tainted with sin. He was covered with the grotesque, soul-condemning sin. The perfect, clean heart of our Lord Jesus Christ was in that moment made completely black with sin. Every evil thought of my heart, every evil desire that enters into my heart, my mind, thrusted upon the pure soul of Christ. So often, we think that sinning is just about the actions that we commit. That these things that we do over here in our life are what condemned Christ. Understand, every sinful thought in your heart thrusted in a moment upon Jesus. Are you amazed yet? At Paul's simple words, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And not just my sinful thoughts, the sinful thoughts of all who would believe in Him simultaneously, instantly, corrupting His nature, His person, who He is. Church, He's not just delivered into the hands of sinners and He's not just delivered up to sin. There's one more thing we must say. This Jesus is delivered up to the wrath of God. Romans 8.32 God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all. Isaiah 53.10 read that verse to you. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Please the Lord. Send Christ to the cross. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Jesus is in the garden praying again before His arrest. And His soul is in such anguish. He's sweating drops of blood. And He says in fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Why is Christ in such anguish? Is it the death? Is it the beatings? Is it the crucifixion itself? Not at all. There have been so many martyrs throughout church history that have gone to be burned at the stake singing hymns and praises to God rejoicing. John Huss nailed to the stake 
and burned there, reciting while he's burning the Psalms, rejoicing in God. You think those men and women of church history can go to the stake to be burned, rejoicing in Christ, is afraid of the cross? That's not it. Christ is not afraid of the hands of sinners. He's about to endure the full, unabated, pure wrath of God for all sin of every person right there on the cross. And in a single moment, God Almighty, who possesses all power, possesses all justice against sin, will pour out His wrath on Jesus. He wasn't just delivered into the hands of sinners. He was delivered into the hands of a wrathful God. So that Christ didn't just hang on your cross. Christ drank your wrath. Every sinful thought that's entered my heart condemned Him there. It's a vital truth of the crucifixion. Paul's statement here in Romans 4.25 is a loaded statement. He's delivered up to the wrath of God. The sinless, guiltless man condemned as the worst of criminals by weak, corrupted, sinful humanity. And we have to ask the most important question we can ask at this moment. Why? Why would He do that? It's a question you have to ask and it's a question you have to answer. Why would God do such a thing for me? He had done nothing wrong. He didn't deserve that cross. I deserved that cross. He submitted and allowed these people to do these things to Him that were supposed to be done to me. He drank God's wrath that was really reserved for me why would he dare do such a thing? And let me give you the answer. Our God has a heart for the guilty. Our God loves the sinner. Loves those who are unrighteous. Loves those who are unworthy. So many people think God is a cosmic killjoy. So many people think that God is waiting in heaven to condemn them, destroy them, pour His wrath out on every sin. Let me tell you, today, God has a heart for the guilty. That's the only explanation why Jesus, who is God and possesses all authority, would submit Himself to such a thing as this and be delivered up for us. And not delivered up for those who are perfect, delivered up for those who needed to be delivered up themselves. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Christ Delivered up for us because He loves us. Doesn't this cross prove His love for the sinner? Doesn't this cross prove His love for you and for me? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me be clear. There is coming a day of wrath for the unbeliever. There is coming a day of judgment for all those who spurn and reject Christ. And that day could be today. But I know without a shadow of a doubt that right now in this moment, God still has a heart for the sinner. God is still seeking to pour out His mercy. There'll come a time when that will pass. But today is the day of salvation, Paul says. Turn to Christ while He's still merciful. Turn to Christ while He's still gracious. Oh sinner, don't you realize how far He went to make a way for you to be reconciled back to Him? That's what it means that He's delivered up. Real quickly, I want to highlight what it means that He's delivered up for our trespasses for our sin. And I want to highlight the seriousness of sin here, that it is an offense against God that condemns us all to death, isn't it? Romans 6.23, we know this verse, for the wages of sin is what? Death. It's all sin can offer. It's all sin can pay you. That's all sin can reward you. And the whole world is so caught up in enjoying their sin. Not realizing that in the end, it condemns them before a holy, righteous judge who must be just in punishing the offenses against Him. Every evil thought condemns us. And, Paul's just explained this in chapter 3, Verse 9, all are under sin. Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Verse 23, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned. There is no good in man. Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses. Ephesians 3, you are by nature children of wrath because of your sin. All have sinned a serious offense against an almighty, holy God. That sin condemns us all. Let's just be real about this. If we were today to fight for our rights against God, we would all be in hell tonight. That's the seriousness of sin. And that sin, because of God's love, requires a sacrifice. And here we have almost an impassable question about God's justice. How can God be just and punish sin rightly if He's perfectly just? Then all injustice must be punished, correct? Sin is injustice. So how can God be just and at the same time forgive? How can He pardon sin? How can he maintain his justice and exercise his mercy? Through the cross. Through Christ being delivered up for our trespasses. You realize that at the cross there are things going on behind the scenes you and I couldn't see. Such as wrath and justice flowing in so that mercy and love could flow out. God maintains his justice by punishing Christ for sin. And he exhibits His mercy 
by Christ being punished for sin. Romans 3.26 This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. God can maintain His perfect justice. Also, deal out mercy. And real quick, I'll highlight again, this church is totally done for us. 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Galatians 1.4 Jesus gave Himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Colossians 2.13 and 14 You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, He did this by setting it aside and nailing it to the cross. We add nothing to God in salvation. We don't make God more glorious, more beautiful, more worthy, more loving, none of that. We add nothing, and yet He gave up everything for your salvation. He was delivered up for your sins. It's not the only part of the verse that Paul talks about. He's delivered up for our trespasses, but he's also raised for our justification. What matters most in Christianity? I would pose that question to you. What matters most standing before God? And the answer is your justification before God. That you be justified in God's Sight, Because again, sin has condemned us all in the courts of God. And in order to ever be accepted by God, we must stand before Him legally justified. No amount of money, no amount of smooth talking, no amount of deeds or efforts could ever justify you in the presence of God. But Christ can. Justification, it's a legal term. You've heard people use the analogy to explain it. To mean just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. So when a Christian becomes a Christian, they're immediately in that moment justified before God. And that's what Paul says is guaranteed for us in the resurrection. That because Christ rose from the dead, we who are Christians are now justified before God. And we ask again the important question, why? Or rather, how? How does the resurrection secure our justification. And I would first tell you that the resurrection is the validation of the sacrifice of Christ. It's the proof that the work on the cross was complete and perfect. It's a sign saying to us that what Jesus did on the cross was enough and was satisfying to God. That Christ has actually conquered sin. Think about it. What is sin's greatest power against us? Death. It provides only death and it lords over us death so that all who are still under sin only inherit death. Therefore, if Christ would not have risen from the dead, how could it ever be said that He conquered sin and death? If He had not risen from the dead, He would constantly be paying our penalty for sin, death. 
We could never say that his sacrifice would be complete. We could never say that his sacrifice would be enough. But when our Lord did resurrect from the grave, he conquered over death once for all. He conquered over sin and made his victory visible. That what I did on the cross was enough. Death cannot hold me. Romans 6, 9 and 10, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will what? Never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. And once for all, the life he lives, he lives to God. So our justification is seen in the resurrection. We're validated in the resurrection. The resurrection is the proof, church, of our justification. That we can trust in the work of Christ on the cross. That when He was delivered up for our trespasses, He finished the job wholeheartedly. I want to just, in conclusion, pose this question to you. I think we've gone far enough. Let me ask you, in the depths of your soul, where only you can answer, how can this justification be applied to you? Christ went to the cross as the sinless God-man, submitting to sinful humans, taking on the corruption of sin, drinking the full cup of the wrath of God, taking the seriousness of our sin upon Himself, being the sacrifice that can make God remain just and merciful to forgive sin, doing it all wholeheartedly for us, proving that work through the resurrection, showing that His justification is enough, that He has conquered over death, that our faith is not futile, that we're not stealing our sins. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're stealing his sins. Praise God, He has been raised. We're not stealing our sins. That's what the resurrection means for our life. That's what it secures. That's how it impacts our everyday life. It provides for us justification before God. You realize that that means we stand before God as if we have never sinned once. Jesus prayed that in John 17. Father, I thank you that you love these just as you've loved me. Can you imagine God loving poor, pitiable, wretched, sinful me just as he loves Christ? God relating to me just as he does Jesus? That's what justification means. How that justification applied to you? Is it by something you do? No. Can you earn that justification? Can you be like Simon the Magician in Acts and ask someone, how much does it cost for me to get that justification? No. That justification is found in God and God alone. Submitting to God in faith and repentance. Turning from a life of sin and trusting in Christ. Here may be another important question. How can you know if you have that justification before God? Because we all must examine our hearts, right? Work out your salvation 
Test yourselves to see if you belong to the faith. Examine yourselves to see if you belong to the faith. Those are all statements that Paul made in Scripture. How do we know if we have that justification? That is found in sanctification. It's found in being made holy. It's being found in bearing the fruit of righteousness in God. Can you honestly say that your heart is in love with Jesus? I don't mean loving the benefits you receive from Jesus. I mean, do you love Jesus? Is your heart quickened and awakened to God? Do you spend your days in sin? Or do you spend your days in seeking after God? The justified heart will seek after God. Will understand the eternal gratitude, the eternal debt they have to God for the grace shown to them. The heart that is not justified is self-centered, concerned about the personal gain, concerned about self, living this world by the rules of this world. If these things are true, church, if Christ really was delivered up for our trespasses, if He really was raised for our justification, if we really do see that the work of the cross was enough through the resurrection, that means we can be saved. Are you saved? Maybe you think you're saved. You thought you were saved for years and years and years. Let me tell you, no amount of going to church is going to save you. No amount of reading your Bible, no amount of praying is going to save you. Only Christ can save. Have you trusted in Christ? To be justified. Don't doubt His love. Don't doubt His commitment. And don't pose to me the question that I'm not good enough. I've done too much in life to be saved. Christ has a heart for the guilty. Turn and be saved. Rejoice in the resurrection. The proof of our justification. The proof of Christ's complete Righteous work on the cross.